schedule says we have to 11.45, which is a terrifying amount of time. So we'll see how we do in terms of my plans. That lifelong conversation I had with my father about teaching, uh, he, he always felt that he didn't have enough material and that he was underprepared, and he always found he had too much material. <laughs> and it's funny, as a, as a minister, that's my experience every single time. So I've got... Uh, more than I could possibly say grace over, but I'm, I'm trying to trust the Holy Spirit and already a couple things have happened that I wasn't expecting and uh, that's just fine because as I am, never want to say to my friends, part of the gospel is the good news that I'm not in charge and neither are you. Thanks be to God. So the Lord will take this time where he wants. I want to finish uh, the anatomy of prayer for a second and then I think I'm going to do something which I wasn't planning on doing but I think I'd like to do which is to take a little bit just to say some practical things about some of the things that I do simply as a guide uh, to how one goes about praying and some important things at a practical level and then I have a teaching on the importance of thanksgiving in prayer and I'm a little bit nervous about it because I prepared this teaching way before um, your assistant preached on uh, Luke 17, 11 to 17. But Brian preached on the passage that I was planning on teaching to you. So I'm a little bit intimidated, but I actually want to go at the, the story of the ten lepers and to talk about Thanksgiving. And then after that, we'll sort of see how much time we have. All right, you, does that sound like a plan? So I want to finish up, and then I'm, I'll probably pray and finish up, and then I'll pray and say something about my prayer time. And at some point in the middle, I think we'll take about a five-minute break. And we'll sort of see how we do. Is that all right? Okay, the Lord be with you. Lord, thank you that you are in the midst of us. Thank you for the gift of joy and wonder in all your works. Thank you for Canuga, for the splendid trees, the glorious lake, and for the fall colors that speak of your resplendent glory. Thank you that you indeed are the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or imagine. Thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, that your train fills the temple. The angels cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord who is and was and who is to come. Thank you that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that we can come into your presence at all times and in all places and come before your heavenly throne because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And Lord, because you are in our midst, we ask that you would come and continue to be with us in the midst of this day by the power of your Holy Spirit, and continue to teach us to learn how to pray, Lord, so that our prayer lives would be deepened and that they would ever more fully flourish to our great benefit and to your great glory. And we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. A couple of quick housekeeping details. Uh, more than one person has said I'm going too fast, and all I can tell you is uh, I've been accused of that my whole life, and all I can tell you is I speak less quickly than my father. So uh, it, it maybe it slows down over generations, but I, I did warn you that you're taking a sip out of a fire hydrant, so my apologies about that. First of all, this book on prayer by O. Halsby, which I want to hold up, it is one of the finest. I think it's the best book on prayer that's ever been written. It's not very long, it's a paperback, it's a worldwide bestseller, and it's simply phenomenal in terms of its impact. Um, H-A-L-L-E-S-B-Y. 
He was one of Norway's leading Christian teachers and devotional writers in the sort of middle, early to middle part of the 20th century. Remarkable person. Second, uh, Martha, especially for you, but I, I couldn't find it fast enough. So this Eugene Peterson uh, statement, which is very similar to the Fred Wheatner, it's just Eugene Peterson's take on it. But I wanted to read it to you because what's so cool about this is he actually never said this. What, what we found out at his funeral was this is what he said to his son for 50 years. And what his son said at the funeral is, my dad really only had one sermon. And this was it. And it's only, it's only four simple statements. But when, you, when you're around somebody who spends their life writing about Christian prayer and spirituality, and they only get one sermon, you learn to pay attention to what they say. So here's what his son said at his funeral that his father said to him every day for 50 years. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He is relentless. It's just beautiful. It's, it's his particular way of speaking as a father to his son. God loves you. He is on your side. He is coming after you. He is relentless. All with me? All right, so we're still in the anatomy of prayer. We talked about the fact that it has to begin Godward. And it has to begin Godward in a profound way to remind ourselves of God's character and God's action, the nature of the God with whom we have to do. Then we've got to purify ourselves and say, if, we, if we're coming into the presence of the King, we've got to shed ourselves of earthly thoughts and just be mindful of the fact that we're talking to the King of the universe and act like it. And then the third thing Calvin says is, if you're going to pray, you've actually got to participate in your own prayers and actually want God to answer you and to pray like that. And that's actually the way that children speak to their parents, and it's the way that we speak to friends when we really want something, right? I really, could you please pay attention? I really want you to hear what I'm saying. That's the kind of thing you say to a dear friend in a certain conversation. And, and Calvin's saying prayers like that. God wants you honestly. John Yates spoke to us at the clergy conference uh, this past week out of 40 years of parish ministry in one place. Can you imagine? Falls Church in Virginia, he was the director there for over four decades. And I was telling Jeffrey at a meal that the thing that was so profound is you could tell that John, was, John spoke to us on prayer. And uh, you could tell that he was speaking to us on prayer out of 40 years of praying. And when you were with him, you could tell that it was 40 years of his prayer life. And one of the things he, he talked about was learning to be honest with God about your prayers. And this is what Calvin's on to. That whole, our team is definitely hot, your team is definitely not, is just a funny way to get you to think that, that God wants your heart. And if you look at the Psalms, when the psalmist is discouraged, he says, Lord, this stinks. I'm discouraged. I'm bummed. That's the way people who are discouraged talk. That's what spouses say. I'm, I'm kind of down. I had kind of a crummy day. Uh, I need you to uh, pick me up. And tell, me, tell me something good that happens, my wife will say. I want to hear one good thing. That's the kind of thing that he's talking about. All right, two more things about the anatomy of prayer. Again, all from Calvin, all based on every prayer he looked at in the Bible. And the last two are different than the first three, but all of them form, I think, a very good full picture. The fourth one is a bit tricky because it seems like it's about the second one, but it's not. The second one is about the fact that you're coming into the presence of the king and so you've got to remind yourself 
that you're, you can't take that for granted and you've got to purify yourself and even though you're on earth, you've got to act as if you're speaking to heaven. The fourth point is this, and I'm going to quote Calvin directly, he who comes into the presence of God to pray must divest himself of all vain, glorious thoughts, lay aside any idea of worth, in short, discard all self-confidence, humbly giving God the whole glory, lest by arrogating anything however little to themselves, they could have vain prize cause them to turn away their face. It's a subtle but a different point. What he's saying is actually you have to be careful because the difficulty with prayer is if you pray and you put the first three things in motion, there's a danger. And the danger is this. You begin to presume, since you're in the presence of the king of the universe and you're passionately pleading out your heart, that you somehow deserve to be there. And so what he's saying in the fourth point is basically this. Make sure all the way through to check your self-confidence. Because self-confidence is a way of creeping back in if you start Godward and you purify yourself. You're talking about yourself, you're talking about your concerns, you're talking about the things that you're struggling with. And Calvin says, you keep, if you keep doing that, unless you're careful, you start arrogating to yourself the things that you're praying about in such a way that actually you're having a conversation with yourself and not God, or at least you're having a conversation with God, but you're presuming that you somehow deserve to be there. So, divest yourself, he says, of self-confidence, which is different than purifying yourself. Divest of self-confidence. You can feel that in Nehemiah's prayer. Did you, did you remember it? He starts out by saying, you are the great and glorious God who keeps covenant with his people. And then he's, then he's got this middle section where he says, and, uh, and we're sinful, we're broken, we're inadequate. And that's one of the ways that you can stay honest is you can right smack in the middle of your prayer and say, Lord, uh, I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to have a relationship with you. I don't deserve to be coming before your heavenly throne. Um, but I thank you for the grace and the privilege of being here. But it's, it's, a, good, it's a good word because self-confidence can creep back in, especially when you're pleading out your heart. Does that make sense to you? Now the last point I think is the most profound, and it's the one that I really had trouble with as a young Christian. And here's Calvin's articulation of it. The last rule of prayer is this. Notwithstanding our thus being abased and truly humbled, and I quote, we should be animated to pray, listen, with the sure hope of succeeding. One more time. We should be animated to pray with the sure hope of succeeding. If you look at biblical prayers carefully, if you consider their context, it's not simply that they're God-centered, it's not simply that you've got to purify yourself, it's not simply that you've got to ardently feel whatever it is that you want. Lord, the walls are broken down. Fix this. And it's not simply that in the midst of all that you've got to be careful that self-confidence doesn't creep back in. But if you do all that, there's one more thing, which is this American idea, Lord, if it's your will, please, could you, Lord, please help me, please. No, that's not biblical prayer. That's not the way the psalmist reads. The psalmist says, Lord, their team is definitely hot. Our team is definitely not. This is terrible. I need you to do something. And I know that you're God. And you're able to do far more abundantly than I can ask or imagine. So you will fix this. I pray to you that you will fix this. And you will. 
One New Testament scholar calls this the glorious confidence of the children of God. And it is one of the hearts of real effective prayer. If you don't really have confidence that God is going to come through for you, it's not going to work. That's why I love that second affirmation from Peterson. He's on your side. If he's on your side, he's going to come through for you. And real prayers pray like that. There's so many aspects of the Gospels you can uh, run up against this, but one of the most poignant is something like that Psalm 31 that I gave you yesterday. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now just think about all that's going on. Um, he's dying. That's from the Psalms that he learned as a young boy. And I, sub I submit to you that what you've got to do is you've got to read that prayer and you've got to think about it in the light of the mystery and the profound profundity of Hebrews chapter 12, where the writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and run the race which is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Okay, So we've got all these saints surrounding us in the arena, and we're looking to Jesus. And then he starts to talk about Jesus. He says this, he says, who, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the pain, and is seated at the right hand of God. Now, the writer of Hebrews is saying something incredibly profound about Christ in that moment. What he's saying is, Christ saw through the cross to the glory that he left when he left the Father's right hand to come down in the first place. He's going back to the glory of the Father. And that glory, and that hope of that glory, and that memory of that glory, is in front of him when he prays, into your hands I commit my spirit. So it is a prayer not of a worn out man who is defeated. It is a prayer of a dying man who is at the center of God's will, who has absolute confidence in his father, who has loved him in the world, and who loved him to the end. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Boom. It's a confident prayer. He's absolutely convinced because he's going to the glory of the Father and he can see it right beyond the veil of death and the pain that he's going through on the cross. You all with me? So, yes, that's the joy, absolutely. But, but, the, but And the joy is one of, I think, the things that infuses the confidence. But I, but I, the, the biblical prayers, I'll probably should flip it over, but I don't want you to miss all those things. But biblical prayers are not tentative prayers. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. It is 
a lot of things in the Lord's Prayer, but one of the deepest things it is, is it's utterly confident. It's utterly trusting. It's utterly undergirded by the fact that God is good and, to quote Peterson, He's on your side. You all with me? All right, now, I'm going to take a bit of a practical turn, and then I'm going to get to the next teaching, and then we'll see how we do. Okay, so I do want to say, I, I was thinking about this, because I, I do worry so much that talking about prayer is so theoretical. It's tricky, because prayer is something you have to learn to do. So I want to say a few, just a few things about uh, things that I've learned to do, or practical things that I want to make sure that are part of, I, I will use this phrase, the spiritual or mental or or personal furniture that need to be part of your quiet time. Okay, so it's, it's every morning, I've talked about that. And it needs to be a specific time of day. For me, it's the morning because I'm a morning person. I used to not be a morning person, I used to be a night person. You talked about life about that. But I'm a morning person now. So, so I'm, I'm up there in the morning, and it needs to be with scripture. It needs to, you need to have a regular pattern of reading through the scripture. And can I just say this as passionately as, as I know how? You must be in a scriptural program that takes you through the scripture as a whole on a regular basis. There are layers of ways to do this. The Robert Murray McShane calendar takes you through all of scripture in a year and the Psalms in the New Testament twice. That's just one example. But you've got to have a lectionary or something that gives you the big vista. So you've got to, you have to, and, and this is all before the prayer, right? So that Psalm 1 precedes Isaiah 50. So you get God's Word in front of you. Now, when you meditate on God's Word, like I talked about, I didn't get very practical, and I want to get very practical in two senses. I want to make sure to challenge you and encourage you about two things. First of all, Scripture memorization is part of the shoulders of those on whom you now stand. You do know that, right? The people who have come before us for 20 centuries, which is the only reason that we're sitting here this morning, are people who learn the Word of God as a way of getting it in their heart. So when Jesus is out there with the de devil being tempted in the wilderness, there's no chance to go blow the dust off the family Bible and look up the verse. right? So when Jesus says, um, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, which is a quote from Deuteronomy 8, He's saying something in his heart, which is coming out of his mouth, because it was in his heart already. So, Scripture is something that you need to learn to meditate on, but you also need to learn to memorize. Have a version of the Bible that you like, that you use all the time, and memorize it in that verse. Now, there's more. There's more. If you're going to get the Scriptures in you, you've got to use every means at your disposal. Uh, several of my friends have learned to write Scripture. I don't know if you're one of those people, but if you're like that, sometimes I have friends who, in college, if they didn't write it down, they didn't remember it. Uh, a lot of people who are, who are visual learners are like that. You've got to write it down. So you're reading your Bible. You're, you're, you're there in the morning. You've got, for me, I've got four readings, Old Testament, Psalm, New Testament, Gospel. If something strikes me, and I'm, I'm a visual person, I write it down. I pay attention to it. There's that kind of thing. But I was a Christian for a long time before I realized that not only did I need to memorize Scripture, and not only did I need to meditate on Scripture, and not only did I need to write down Scripture, but I needed to play with Scripture. And for me, this came through music. I was a college student, and it was my third year as a Christian at Bowdoin College, where Mark Rutan and I overlapped, which is a long story for another time. Um, 
amazing that Mark is here and we used to be together in Maine through what, three decades plus ago. But, but I was up at this retreat and they said, hey, you know, you need to learn to memorize scripture. And one of the ways you can learn to do it is write a song that is based on a scripture verse. And I thought, wow, this is cool. You gotta be kidding. So they sent us out into the woods. They taught us how to spend a day with God. There's an, there's an image for you. How do you spend a day with God? I've been a Christian three years. Nobody ever told me. They gave us a little outline. They said, go spend a day with God. But one of the things they told us is, you, you write a song, you memorize scripture, and you write your own song. So today, this morning, I had uh, Psalm 30 in my devotional readings. And it's very powerful for me to sing this for you because this was written by one of my friends at that retreat over three decades ago. And it was what he shared with us. And it's from Psalm 30. And he wrote this song. It goes this way. Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. To the end that my glory will sing praise to thee, O God, and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks unto thee forever and ever. Now that's about it. That's really very simple. That's Psalm 30, verses 15 and 16 in the King James. It's a song. It's way down in here. Every time I look at that song, that song comes to my mind. Now I wrote a song for my favorite Bible verse, which I'm not going to make you suffer through. But you may not be a singer. And remember the Bible only says you have to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. You can learn to write down your favorite scriptures. But, but you've got to find a way to cultivate your imagination with Scripture so that it grabs a hold of your heart. If you only read it, and you don't feel it, and you don't sing it, and you don't meditate on it, it doesn't become a part of you. Right? That Cranmerian collect that we have as part of our Anglican legacy, five verbs, Lord, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, that's four, and then the last one, inwardly digest them. Does he? Good for him. Well, so, and, and there are images in the scriptures of eating the scriptures. So, and if you, if you go to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, you'll see the, the, the rabbinic tradition, you'll see, you'll see them praying like this, back and forth, and you can do that. You can masticate and medi meditate on a particular, you can chew on it. So that it becomes part of you. All right, now you've got to have, okay, so all this, this is still reading now, okay, so then, then you've got to have a prayer life that has a structure, right? And I believe that 1 Timothy 2 is in the New Testament for a reason, and that you've got to pray for those in authority. So if, when you actually get, now all that is, you're filling your mind, you're, you're there with the Lord, now you're, gonna, you're, now you're at the place where you're going to pray your prayers. And it doesn't start with you, it doesn't start with your family, it doesn't start with your church, it starts with the world. You do know this, right? Our God is a global God. He's after the whole world. And he tells Abraham, go, go, and all the peoples of the world will be blessed through you, right? Our God is a global God. And we are part of the worldwide missionary movement because our God is after the whole world. So think globally, act locally in your prayer life, which means for me, I've got to pray for those in authority and that they would be given reins of justice. I have certain leaders that I pray for 
Uh, right now, Italy is driving me crazy because I keep learning the head of Italy and then they keep rotating the, the political situation. So now I've got to pray for Prime Minister Conte. In the last couple of months, I keep looking up the head of Italy because I keep forgetting. I myself pray for peace every day because I make a habit of praying for peace because I think Jesus is, is the Prince of Peace. That's something that helps me. So I always pray for particular situations of conflict. And uh, as a result of what's happened, everything that I pray for has stayed fairly standard for years and years, but I've just recently, this year, added Hong Kong in about the last six or seven months because I'm very concerned. And I, when I pray for that, I pray for peace where there is no peace, but I also pray for the peacemakers that they would be raised up. And that's something that helps me. I still haven't gotten to myself. Then I always pray for people to come to faith who don't know Christ. And I have a way of doing that. I always pray for my family, for my wife's family. My wife's parents are both Christians. They're with the Lord. So I don't know. I prayed for them my whole life while they were here. So all I, need to, all I know to do is to say, Lord, bless them in heaven. Because that's where they are. Uh, but, but all the rest of her, her six other siblings and herself are here. But I pray for my family, for my wife's family. And then as a Christian, I learned that most people come to faith at age 25 or under. You do know that, right? Roughly 90%. So I always pray every day for every person in the world in college and graduate school and high school to come to a person in the saving knowledge of Jesus, uh, that he would deliver them from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And then I pray for the ministries that minister to those people, navigators, campus crusade, and varsity. This is what I do because it's helpful for me. That's a particular passion of mine. I'm giving you a flavor of what I do, not because I want you to imitate what I do, but what I want to do is give you some encouragement. You've got to have a part of your prayer life where you pray for something that is something that you particularly care about. If you care about science and people who are in science who don't know Christ, we need to come to faith. If that's your heart's passion, that needs to be in your prayer life every day. If you care about the economy, that needs to be in your prayer life. Whatever, whatever really fires you up. If you care about global warming and the importance of ecology and stewardship, for me, as somebody who came to faith right before college because of University Christian Fellowship and uh, ministries like that, I pray. For, that's what I pray for. I still haven't gotten myself. Um, then I pray for the church, which I think is something every Christian pray for. I pray for the Pope. I pray for Patriarch Bartholomew, who's over the Eastern Orthodox community. I pray for Justin Welby, who's the head of Anglicanism. And then I pray for particular Anglican leaders who are dear to me. I always pray for Mark Lawrence, for his wife Allison. Uh, for their children, for their grandchildren, for their godchildren. And then I pray for every parish in the Diocese of South Carolina. And since I'm here with several of them, I always pray for all the clergy and their marriages. Because that's something that's a passion for me. Again, what I want to encourage you to do, that's, I mean, I'm an ordained minister, so big surprise, I pray for the clergy. That's not something necessarily that you're passionate about. But notice, I haven't gotten to myself, I'm praying for other stuff. But I want to make sure that as a Christian, every day, I name my bishop before Christ. I've told my children, every day I see them, I want them to be able to look at me and know that their father has named them before the throne of grace. Now, I notice I still haven't gotten my family. They're dead last. And I always pray for my wife and my three children. And what I've learned to pray, especially, and I want to commend this to you, is this. Faith, hope, and love. The three theological virtues. One of the most beautiful things you can pray for any other Christian is this, brothers and sisters, that their faith in you may grow more and more, that their love for you grow more and more, that their hope in you grow more and more. That is a Christian prayer, and I cannot commend that to you highly enough. So that's the way I structure my prayer life as a help to me. Notice, 
Intercession is way at the bottom. It's very focused on God, and it's very focused on Scripture, and the reading of Scripture, and the meditating of Scripture, and it's very focused on the world. For me, it's an exercise in reality therapy. By the way, when I got up this morning and I started, the internet didn't work in my room, so I had to go out to the lobby to connect to get my scripture passages to come up on my phone, right? So you're going to be, you're going to have obstacles, right? Depending on what happens. But what I want to commend to you is this: have a structure, have things in there that that you pray about because you care about. See, I I submit to you, I bet I pray much more fervently than most of you would for every college student and graduate student and person under 25 to come to Christ. Because that's a particular passion of mine. But you have your own passions. You have your own biases. You have your own experience. And what I want you to do in your prayer life is I want your prayer life to feed off your passions uh, so that so you can particularly pray for the building of God's kingdom in a particular way. You all with me? That's just a bit. Is that, is that helpful? Okay. Yeah, you got a question. Intimidating. Oh, they shouldn't be. So, can you maybe sort of get people jump started with perhaps a little less? A little less? <laughs> well, I can't imagine, except for maybe you praying for all those things. And no, no, that's but that's just that, that's just it's just meant to be um, a window to look through. No, no, it's 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 not meant to be a standard. Otherwise, it just becomes law and not gospel. But I, th- I think you need to have, a, a, it, it, I, I didn't learn for a long time that you needed a structure and that you needed to be God-centered and that you needed to be world-centered first. And that's the main thing I want. If whatever you do, if you can do those two things before you get to yourself, you're off to a great start. Right? And we're, we live in a completely nutty time in the world, so heaven only knew, know, knows the world needs prayer, right? We can all agree on that. All right. Um, I think I'm going to take a five-minute break. Okay, until I take questions. Go ahead, please. You know, uh, you mentioned earlier about um, being awake in the night. Yes. Do you take that as a, um, as a time to go spend with the work that Absolutely, and, I, and I, I, I'm a big believer in keeping a book, or in my case, I now write it on my phone. But yes, start writing it down. Especially, the question was, I should have repeated it for the tape. If you get awakened in the night, do you see that as a time to spend time with the Lord? Absolutely. And I, I try to ask myself, what's the last image I have in my mind, too? Because a lot of times there's a dream or something or other. I, uh, I have a lifelong dream, which is a nightmare, which is of my viva for my doctorate being redone, <laughs> which I fail. <laughs> and it, it, I, I sometimes get awakened in the middle of the night with that recurring nightmare. And it's, it's because all of us live with imposter syndrome, right? You all know this, right? Where all, every, everyone is, all, all men are dying to want to figure out what they're supposed to be doing when they, when they grow up and to make their mom happy and to do the right thing. And all of us have some sense that we're just not measuring up. And usually when I wake up with that, I just try to get the Lord to tell me that I can be given the glorious confidence of the children of God, and that gets me back to bed. So that's an example. Yes. Go ahead, please. I um, have followed your routine. Yeah. Where I may pray for something repetitive. Yes. Then I read something that kind of confused me that once you've made the request, you shouldn't make it again. Because it shows a lack of confidence in God hearing you and answering your prayer. 
I see. Uh, so the question is, if you if you pray for specific requests, what he read said that he shouldn't pray for it anymore because that would show a lack of faith. Um, I have a question about the biblical theology behind that. No, because I've been, but but, but it, 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 this is part of this mysterious teaching of O. Halsby of prayer as work. If you think about the Lord's Prayer, remember the two key books for prayer are the Psalms and the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is, give us this day our daily bread, and it's prayed every day. And there's a reason for that. Uh, it is a declaration of dependence, but it's also a declaration of expectant provision. And it's not that you didn't believe that he provided for you yesterday, and that he will provide for you tomorrow. But the only days in the Bible that we have, you all know this, right, are today and that day. You do know that, right? That's the only. Those are the only days we have. That day is the great and terrible day of judgment when history ends. And today is today. And today is the only day we, we have. You all know this, right? Hospice is where people learn to live, right? You and I, most of us, are pretending to live. Because they know they're going to die, which is true of all of us anyway. And one of the sayings of hospice is, uh, there is no tomorrow. Today is the only day that we have. Right, so and, and it's a it's a repetitive prayer. So Jesus teaches us to pray repetitively, and I, I think part of banging on the door of heaven, you get that image from that widow and the unjust judge. You know, you get the sense that when she comes back, she's asking for the same thing again and again. But what you find is, uh, at least for me, you, you find yourself when you pray repetitively, you go at it in different ways, and that's part of the profundity of prayer. Because one of the most magical things that happens in prayer is God changes us. Right? It's not so much that God changes history, it's God changes us, which changes history. I should have already said, uh, in my family, you probably know this, you, I, I grew up in an environment where you had to answer questions to survive, so I actually thrive answering questions. So since we've gone to question time, might as well keep going. Yes, please, go ahead. Yes? Yes, please. Yes, please. Yes, please. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's okay. The point where you said about not praying more if it's your will, right. but I know you are God, you can fix it, I know you will. Right. Does that not presume to know the will of God? No, it doesn't. That's why that's why I think that that's what that's why Calvin he doesn't say what Calvin says is animated to pray with the sure hope of succeeding. Not the presumption that your idea of success will be, in fact, success. And everybody here could testify about prayers that were answered very differently than we thought, or in some cases even the opposite of what we thought. But, but what he's saying is very important, which is part of the mystery of prayer is you've got to pray and hope this will succeed because that's what the Lord has given you. And what you'll find is, over time, sometimes even that particular prayer that you hope to succeed will shift in the way that you're praying it. So it's not a presumption about the answer. It's, it's a grounded confidence in the one who will answer. And that's a subtle but important difference. But you're right, if you do it the wrong way, it can get to presumption, which is why that fourth point about making sure that self-confidence doesn't creep back in there is so important. Yes, please, go ahead. Right. My question is, I'm not sure why the Lord required me to pray for the person to 
So, so is your is your question why did the Lord wake you up at four thirty to pray for that particular person? Twice in his life he's been awakened at 4.30 in the morning and he's been awakened with a particular individual right smack in his mind and he knew that he needed to pray and to pray for that person. And he said, right, right now, and then his question is why? And, and here's the thing, is that, and I haven't done enough on this yet, and I, I have a story, and if I tell it, we may never get to a break, but um, it's so important that you don't know why, you just know that in the providence of God it's part of the unfolding work of history. And prayer changes the world. And uh, I haven't said this enough, but I want to make sure to say it. And if I do anything, the two things I want you to go forward with is have a prayer life and really believe that prayer changes history. And you, this is your fault, but you provoke one of my favorite stories about answered prayer. So can I, can I do this? Now, let me just, let me just, um, let me just preface this story by saying uh, I've had a lot of experiences in my life that I had no idea at the time until later what a privilege it was and when I was in college and I was in college from 1978 to 1982 in 1981 I went to the Urbana Missionary Conference at the University of Illinois and I heard Helen Rosenbeer who's a lifelong missionary to Zaire speak I remember it like it was yesterday because she was such a profound and godly woman lots of parts about it. This is a story of hers about answered prayer, which is one of the most powerful stories about answered prayer I've ever heard. And the reason why I wanted to read it and answer your question is, it epitomizes the answer to your question. It's actually a perfect answer. So, here's your Helen Rosevere story. Right, you ready? Now, this is a missionary serving in Africa. And this is about prayer and the fact that God answers prayer. One night in Central Africa, I had worked hard to help a mother in the labor ward, but in spite of all that we could do, she died, leaving us with a tiny premature baby and a crying two-year-old daughter. We had difficulty keeping the baby alive. We had no incubator. We had no electricity to run an incubator, and we had no special feeding facilities. And we lived on the equator. Nights were often chilly with treacherous drafts. A student midwife went for the box we had for such babies and for the cotton wool that the baby would be wrapped in. Another went to stoke the fire and to fill a hot water bottle. She came back shortly in distress to tell me that in filling the bottle, it had burst. Rubber perishes easily in tropical climates. And it is our last water bottle, she exclaimed. As in the West, it is no good crying over spilled milk. So in Central Africa, it might be considered no good crying over a burst water bottle. They do not grow in trees, and there are no drugstores down forest pathways. All right, I said, put the baby as near the fire as you possibly can. Sleep between the baby and the door to keep it free from drafts. Your job is to keep the baby warm. The following noon, as I did on most days, I went to have prayers with many of the orphanage children who chose to gather with me. I gave the youngsters various suggestions of things to pray about, and I told them about the tiny baby. I explained our problem about keeping the baby warm enough, mentioning the hot water bottle. The baby could so easily die if it got chilled. I also told them about the two-year-old sister crying because her mother had died. During the prayer time, one ten-year-old girl, Ruth, prayed with the usual blunt consciousness of our African children. 
Please, God, she prayed. Send us a water bottle. It'll be no good tomorrow, God. The baby will be dead. So please send it this afternoon. I gasped. This is Rosevere now, the lifelong Zion missionary. I gasped at the audacity of the prayer. And then she added as a corollary, and while you are about it, would you please send a dolly for the little girl so you'll know that you, she really loves you really love her. As often with children's prayers, I was put on the spot. Could I honestly say amen? I just did not believe God would do this. And oh yes, I know that he can do everything. The Bible says so. But there are limits, aren't there? The only way God could answer this particular prayer would be by sending me a parcel from the homeland. I'd been in Africa for almost four years at the time, and I had never, ever received a parcel from home. Anyway, if anyone did send a parcel, who would put in a hot water bottle? I lived on the equator. Halfway through the afternoon, I was teaching in the nurse's training school. A message was sent that there was a car at my front door. By the time I reached home, the car had gone, but there on the veranda was a large 22-pound parcel. I felt tears sprinkling my eyes. I could not open the parcel alone, so I went to the orphanage children. Together, we pulled off the string, carefully undoing each knot. We folded the paper taking care not to tear it unduly. Excitement was mounting. Some 30 or 40 pairs of eyes were focused on a large cardboard box. From the top, I lifted out a brightly colored set of knitted jerseys. Eyes sparkled as I gave them out. Then there were knitted bandages for the leprosy patients, and the children began to look a little bored. Next came a box of mixed raisins and sultanas that would make a bunch of buns for the weekend. And as I put in my hand, I felt pause. Could it really be? I grasped it and I pulled it out. You know what I'm going to read. A brand new hot water bottle. I cried. I had not got, asked God to send it. I had not truly believed he could. Ruth was in the front row of the children. She rushed forward, crying out, if God sent the water bottle, he must have sent the dolly too. So Ruth rummaged down to the bottom of the box and pulled out a small, beautifully dressed dolly. Her eyes shone. She never doubted. And she looked up at me and she said, Can I go over with you, Mommy, and give this dolly to that little girl? So she'll know Jesus really loves her. Now this is the key to the story. That parcel had been in transit for five months Packed up by my former Sunday school class, whose leader had heard and obeyed God's prompting to send a hot water bottle even to the equator. And one of the girls who was present had put in a doll for an African child five months earlier in answer to the bleeding prayer of a ten-year-old to bring it. That afternoon, and Rosevere quotes Isaiah 65, verse 24, and it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. That's why. Isaiah 65, verse 24. You don't know, but you know he will. And thank God for those faithful Sunday school teachers way off in our native land who sent the dolly and the water bottle five months earlier. They had no idea what they were doing. 
but they were doing the work of God. Okay, five minute break. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. for the parents who have children in the children's okay. programs. So we can take a little break, but I think maybe it might be time. Oh, you just want me to keep going? Okay. Uh, I've only got 20 minutes. But, but then are we going to, where is somebody who, uh, are we going to, we had planned to have some prayer time, but we could wait and have the prayer time this afternoon. Captain, do you want to make a No, no, that's fine. We can have the prayer time. I think it's prayer time's good. Prayer time? Yeah, I knew, I knew that. Yeah, so the question. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I'll, let me just keep going. Keep going. Okay, God, God's here and everybody liked the story, so we'll, we'll stick with it. Um, this is another thing I wasn't planning on doing, but I think I'm going to do it. So, one of the things that I was asked to do as the speaker is, I was I told you about writing songs for scripture. One of the things I was asked to do as a speaker is, we, they, they said, you have a lot of time, and if you're worried about filming it, you could, you could, you could set us up with an exercise. And uh, I, I prayed about this, and I thought about this, and I, uh, I don't always do this, but sometimes when you come up with an idea, you shoot high. And uh, this may be a mistake, but I want to I shoot high. Uh, and so I have a challenge for you before I finish up my last session. And I think it's a good, I think it's a good challenge. And, and it's a little bit different than writing a song for Scripture. It's this. I want to challenge you, and this, this is a challenge for you as a group, but I want you to break it down. So you could do this with your friends or family, but I want you to get, you have to get it with at least more than one person, so it could be you and your spouse. But here's the challenge. I want you to write your own song. Now, it doesn't need to be long, your own song. And I'm, I'm after, especially, because there are lots of different types of songs, I'm after a song of thanksgiving. And I'm going to say a word about this, and then I'm going to do the rest of my teaching and believe you. But here's what here's the challenge, and I think it's going to be actually fun. I want you to write the song, and if you feel led, I want you to share it in worship tomorrow. So you got you got until tomorrow worship to figure out your song. And I, I don't want it to be long, but here is the image that I want you to have. I want you to write a song, which is a song of thanksgiving. And here here are the options. I want you to thank God for a blessing. I want you to thank God for an event. Or I want you to thank God for a place. Alright, so those are your three options. A blessing, that is to say, something particular that's happened to you. And I, I should add, uh, your psalm is no good to the rest of us unless it's specific. Right? So if the Lord delivered you because your child was really sick and in the hospital, if you say, Lord, thank you for answering my prayer about Steve, none of us are going to, that's not a psalm. If you read the Psalms, they, he says, Lord, my feet were in the miry pit, and I was sinking in the clay, and then you raised me up. That, that allows me to participate. So you've got to be specific. You've got to describe the situation. But it, it can be a, an event, it can be a blessing, or it can be a place. So I'm going to give you some examples. Uh, and you don't have, this is an optional exercise. If you, don't, if you don't feel led to do it, don't do it. You can do it as an individual if you can't find anybody to do it with, that's fine. But I think it can be very profound. It probably shouldn't be more than maybe four or five verses. So let me, I'm going to give you two examples. One's a little bit longer, one's shorter. So I'll, let me just do a psalm for my family. Okay, so here, here, here it goes. Okay. Heavenly Father and gracious God, 
Glory to you for the blessing of my family. I thank you for Elizabeth, for for bringing her into my life, and for her glorious green eyes. I thank you for our oldest child, Abigail, whose, source me, whose name means source of joy, because every time she's around, I feel more joyful. I thank you for our son, Nathaniel, for his passionate intensity and for the excitement that he feels whenever he discovers something that he didn't know. And I thank you for Salima Marie, who has a lifelong love for animals, which is limitless and boundless, and I thank you that I know she's doing what you're calling her to do. Now that's really simple, and I only have four other members of my family, so I just went one verse for God, one verse for each family member, and maybe you didn't know my wife had green eyes, and now you do, but let me tell you, they were hypnotic when we met, (laughs) And, and they still are. She's from an Irish Catholic family, and those green eyes are magic. They were then, and they are now. I thank God for lots of things in her life, but but I love those green eyes. That means a lot to me, but the point, you see what I'm saying about specifics. All right, here's another one. This is a little bit longer. I wrote this this morning when I was thinking about challenging you to do this. Uh, Your clergy and I were just at Camp St. Christopher. You may have been there. I hope you have. It's our camp and conference center. It's a tremendously magical place. It's meant a lot to a lot of us for a lot of years. So here's a psalm about St. Christopher. Lord, we bless your name for Camp St. Christopher, for the New York couple who had no children, who gave it as a gift to the Diocese of South Carolina, for the vastness of the Atlantic Ocean that laps upon her shores that reminds us of your greatness, for the beautiful orange sunrises that glisten over the gray sand in the morning, for the occasional dolphin sightings that sometimes occur as I run along the beach in the early mornings. It all tells me that you are Lord and giver of life, and that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Thank you, Father, also, for the memories of your work here that stir my heart. For the first time I visited here at a Curcio with Bishop Allison and Rennie Scott. There's a memory. For our honeymoon here, with games of Scrabble and Cribbage, all the while being serenaded by the waves along the shore. For our last visit here with our oldest daughter, Abigail, not yet one year old, as I watched her stare off into the wild azure sea right before we left the country for three years, which spoke to me so deeply about the unknown we were about to step into. Lord, there are so many memories of this magical, blessed place, it seems as if I cannot count them all. And these are only my memories, and this is only one place in your whole glorious creation. It tells me so deeply of how generous a giver you are, showering us with blessings beyond number every day. Glory to you, Lord God, the maker and giver of Camp St. Christopher, and so much more. Your love reaches past the heavens, and your gifts beyond the stars. That's just my prayer. You would have different things. But it's a place. It's a special place. And I talked about things about the place that I liked, and I talked about memories of the place. Those are just ideas. So, something that happened that's a blessing, a particular place. What did I say? I had three things. An event. An event, a a place, or a blessing. Does that fit? And just give it a go. It doesn't have to be more than four or five verses, but you'd be amazed 
at how it builds up the people of God because your experience of God's grace is different than mine. And you might not be thankful for all those things about but see, you were moved, I could tell, by watching your eyes. Everybody here knows about a dolphin. <laughs> and that's my specific joy, and so that's, that's something for you. All right? So take that away for what it's worth. Um, with regard to praying, and then I'm going to do my last thing and I'll be done. With regard to praying, I do, I do want to say something about what I want you to pray for. I want you to pray for your prayer lives. I know you've got a lot of things to pray for. I know you have things in your family, and that's all fine. But I want you to pray for your prayer lives, and I want you to pray that it would become an adventure. I want you to pray the prayer that, that Jeremiah got from the Lord, which is, how come you're satisfied running with horses when God wants so much more? Uh, God is better than we think. God is greater than we think. C.S. Lewis has this fantastic idea of the intolerable compliment, right? We keep asking God to love us less, and he keeps insisting on loving us more. Uh, so I want you to have a holy dissatisfaction with the way things are in your prayer life. And I want you to pray that God would burst forth upon your prayer life, and it would be new and exciting and spirit-filled and glorious. Is that, is that okay as a specific challenge? All right. And I'm just going to take the few minutes I've got left. Uh, I do want to say something about this passage, even though Brian preached on it, so I'm intimidated. Uh, but I, I, I do love uh, this story of the Ten Lovers. And it's really a simple story about Thanksgiving. And as I teach on it, I just want to say three quick things about it. Especially since Brian already preached on it, you probably think there's nothing else to say. So we're in Luke 17, verses 11 to 17. So first of all, what it doesn't say. Second of all, what it does say. And third of all, what it means. Nike theology. Just do it. Right? No good. That's not gospel. 
but the second thing about that, and it's, it's why I mentioned over-familiarity the text, the second thing about that that's so infuriating is it's utterly at odds with what the story is actually saying. And this is why I, uh, I like teaching on stuff like this, because you have to get into the meat of the passage. What is leprosy, and what's it like being a leper back in Jesus' day? I mentioned this in the sermon. It's terrible. You're ostracized. You're away from the community. You're away from your family. You actually have to cry out uh, to make sure that people know, to warn them. You have to say, I am a leper. Right? We are lepers. Leprosy. So the people stay away from you. So you're completely ostracized. You're away from your family. So let's just say, hypothetically, you put yourself in this community of 10 people. You've been part of this leper community for 10 years, 20 years. You haven't seen your family. They can't touch you. They can't feel you. They can come near you, but they can't visit you in such a way that's intimate. You've lost your relationships. You're completely ostracized. You're all alone. You cry out to this passing rabbi one day, Lord, please fix this. Please heal us. We go to the priest, and they're all healed. Question, do you actually believe, brothers and sisters, do you actually believe that one was happy and the other nine weren't? If you do, I have a bridge to sell you at lunch to Haiti. <laughs> Everyone is thankful. Right? You could write the script yourself. Right? You could write the high school play. Right? Uh, leper number four bursts through the, 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 uh, the, the, the grassy door on the outside of his family's uh, house in Jerusalem and says, I'm back. I'm home. I'm healed. Right? Awesome. Everybody's thankful. They're all glad. Their lives have been changed. The idea that, that people are healed of something that awful, of ostracism at that level, and not pleased, is ludicrous. They're all thankful. So the story is not, not, not about being thankful. It's much more profound and much more deep than that. It's about the fact that what you're thankful for is connected to the person and the figure of Christ. The difference between the nine and the one is not that their lives were transformed, that they were healed, that they were thankful. It was who they were thankful to and what they connected, the fact that they were thankful to. And this one, who we find out in the story was a Samaritan, connects it to the person of Jesus. And if you remember the text, it says at the end, Jesus says of him, you've been saved. So, one of the ways that you can run the tape on the story is to ask yourself the question, what is that one guy thinking as he goes away on his way to the priest and when he's healed and as he's going back to Jesus? And what he's thinking is, he's thinking God has healed me and there's a connection between the power of God and this guy and I've got to tangibly say thank you to this guy. And so what that story is about, which is why I want to tie it to prayer and thanksgiving for us, brothers and sisters, is... The heart of a prayer life involves thanksgiving, and the heart of thanksgiving, the way God wants it to work, is to be thankful for God, to God for the blessings that He gives you, and to connect the blessings He gives you in your life all the time with the person and the figure of Christ and the power of God working through Christ. That's what the story is about. Now I conclude with this: What does it mean? And I give you some images to, to play with, uh, to kind of send you off. And remember, prayer is not only thanksgiving, but I'm talking specifically at the end here about the importance of thanksgiving. And what I want to give you as a challenge is two challenges. One is, 
So I'm going to take them in order. In Deuteronomy 8, which is the Old Testament reading for Thanksgiving, the writer says this. He says, they're getting ready to go into the promised land. They've been led for 40 years. And Moses says, God's led you all this place. God's with you right now. And God's about to give you a glorious future. So he asked them to turn their mind in the present moment in three directions. Look back, look around, and look forward. And it's indispensable as Christians, brothers and sisters, that we learn to do this. The fuel of thanksgiving is those three directions. It's in the liturgy. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. You've got to have a memory. You've got to have a memory of the work of God in your life. I just spent two days with Benjamin Kwashi, who's the Archbishop of Jos in Nigeria and a personal friend. I've never been with Ben Kwashi and not been encouraged. It's just amazing. I walk into a room and Ben Kwashi's there and I walk out and I feel better. He's just an awesome man of God. And when I was with him at the church in London about a month ago now, he told the story again of when they tried to kill him. And he and his daughter were home and because they cultivated a lifelong relationship with the police, the police got wind of the plot and informed him just before their house was going to be blown up and he got out of the house with his daughter and his, his house was literally blown up, literally incinerated, the whole thing. And if you go over to Nigeria in the corner of his office and now he said it's at his house, he's got a little piece of shrapnel in his house. And he says to that London church, as he says to you and to me, if you were here, he definitely said this, he said, I'm living on borrowed time. I'm a brand plucked from the burning. I should be dead. I shouldn't be here. And uh, that's, that's what the Old Testament calls a stone of remembrance. And if you're going to be a thankful person, you've got to have stones of remembrance that you rub in your, in your morning quiet time. Specific events and dramatic things that happen. Then you've got to look around. Newsflash. You didn't make your day. You didn't make this day. You didn't make yourself. You didn't make this parish. You didn't make Canuga. You didn't make the world. You are surrounded by incredible blessings all the time. And part of being a Christian is to learn to cultivate a heart of thanksgiving by looking around. Clyde Kilby, who was a C.S. Lewis nut and a professor at Wheaton College, was famous for four generations of Wheaton College students who he transformed as a teacher. One of his early exercises was this. He sent his students out to lie in a grassy field, look up at the sky, and do guess what? Do nothing. And what they had to do was, and they do this for several hours, they had to simply observe, listen, and watch, and come back. And I, I still meet Wheaton College grads, and they still tell me about their field experience. They saw birds and planes and worms and all sorts of stuff. What was he doing? He was trying to get them to slow down and look around at the givenness of stuff. And then, finally, there's a glorious future. Right? Yours is the kingdom and the power forever and ever at the end of the Lord's Prayer. The God who holds the future holds us in his hand now. I don't know about you, but I long to know the future. And we can't. But we know the God of the future, and the God who's led us faithfully to this point is going to lead us into the future that he has for us. And it will be glorious, and it will be good, because he will be there. And we can trust him. So look back, look around, and look forward. And the last little point, and then I'm done because I'm at the end of my time, is this little phrase, keeping. Uh, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray, pray the Lord my soul to take that ancient 
prayer. Psalm 121 says, He who watches over Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. And the psalmist again and again is thanking God that, that he's kept. So I'm sitting there in Vancouver in the middle of a class one day, and my professor says one of those things that just sticks with you for the rest of your life. So we're sitting there, and he says, You know, the difference between order and disorder is this. One turn of the wheel in a car on the way down the road. And then he just stops. Here's a question for you. How many terrorist incidents has the, the intelligence department in the United States foiled over the last multiple decades? We haven't had a big one since 9-11. Short answer, we don't have a clue. A whole bunch. You haven't. The Lord has kept you. There's a lot of near accident. You're going to find out about this later. There's a lot of ways that you've been kept. And there's lots of things that we need to be thankful for. But one of the simple things is the trains run on time. We got up. We have shelter. We have food. And we've been kept. And part of learning to be thankful is not just to look back and to look around and look forward, but to pause and say, I've been kept. I'm still here. There's something rather than nothing. And the glorious God has given it to me. So, uh, some images for Thanksgiving. Now I'm done. Time's up. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.